Welcome to the National Native Network Podcast Series. Today we're presenting our webinar archive, Part 1, Effective Strategies to Reach Patients for Colorectal Cancer Screening During COVID-19. To view the webinar video and additional resources, please visit our website, keepitsacred.org, and click the Resources tab and the Webinar Archive tab. Please enjoy our presentation. Hello, my name is Mike Willette with the National Native Network, a program of the Intertribal Council of Michigan. Welcome to the NNN webinar series on cancer risk reduction in Indian country. This webinar is titled Effective Strategies to Reach Patients for Colorectal Cancer Screening During COVID-19. This technical assistance webinar is being hosted by the National Native Network with the Indian Health Service Health Promotion and Disease Prevention, which offers technical assistance and resources for commercial tobacco and cancer prevention and control throughout Indian country and the Indian Health Service Clinical Support Center. Your presenters today are Don Haverkamp, an epidemiologist for the Centers of Disease Control and Prevention, and Kevin English, Director of, at the Albuquerque Area Southwest Tribal Epidemiology Center. No commercial interest support was used to fund this activity. At the end of this activity, the healthcare, the healthcare team will be able to apply safe and convenient colorectal cancer screening for American Indian and Alaska Native patients. Identify geographical differences in colorectal cancer incidence among American Indian and Alaska Native populations. And recommend appropriate testing for patients by following the draft USPSTF recommendation to begin screening average risk average risked patients at age 45. If you have any questions, please type your questions into the question box in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. Questions will be answered during the last few minutes of this presentation. And at this time, I'm going to throw it to Don Haverkamp. Uh, thank you, Mike. Um, yes, uh, thanks for inviting me to present at the webinar today for National Native Network and IHS. Thanks to Alberto Vicente as well for inviting me. I am an epidemiologist who works at CDC's Division of Cancer Prevention and Control. And I've been working for several years um, as a field assignee in Albuquerque, New Mexico, where I work with uh, IHS and tribes on trying to implement projects uh, that increase colorectal cancer screening around the country for American Indian and Alaska Native populations. So today in a, a brief presentation, I wanted to just uh, kind of give some <clears throat> updates on colorectal cancer incidence uh, rates and trends and a few other things. If, um, so just a quick presentation overview. I'll touch on colorectal cancer incidence rates and trends for AIN populations. I will also 
look at colorectal cancer screening prevalence among AIAN. Then we'll take a brief look at evidence-based screening strategies. Um, and finally, I'll just touch on some of the past and current projects that our division at CDC has funded over the several, several of the past years, groups around the country. So first, just to look at uh, colorectal cancer incidence rates. The last publication we had done on this topic was in the American Journal of Public Health back in 2014. Can't believe it's been that many years already, but in that data, we actually looked at data from 2005 to 2009. We kind of aggregate data together uh, over a five-year period just because of the smaller numbers for certain populations such as AIAM populations. So this current data that I'll show you, actually, um, I've done some analysis on more recent data that we have around incidents and trends. So our current data is looking at 2012 through 2016. Um, and this slide, I'll give you a minute to take a look because it's kind of busy, but this looks at incidence rates during that time period for American and Alaska Native in the, I guess, orange bars uh, with, <clears throat> with the control group, comparison group of white, white persons. And here we have males on the left and females on the right. And this breaks down the top 15 cancers ranked for American and Alaska Natives. Um, so for males, we have prostate cancer being the highest, has the highest incidence rate, uh, followed by lung cancer. And, and then third, we have colorectal cancer. <clears throat> and you can see by looking at the bars here as well that the incidence rate for American and Alaska Native males is significantly higher than that of uh, white males. And for females, we show um, the highest ranking cancer is uh, breast cancer, followed by lung cancer. And then again, the third highest cancer among American and Alaska Native females is colorectal cancer. Um, and you can also see that it, the rate for colorectal cancer is much higher for Native women than it is for non-Hispanic white women. If we look at the data a different way, we, here we see a uh, breakdown just by age groups. Um, as most of you may know, screening currently starts at age 50 for average risk persons. Um, so we look at the actually the, the rates for people under 50 years of age, under the screening age. And then we have 50 to 64 year olds, 65 to 70, 75, 80, et cetera. <clears throat> and you can see in each, each age category, um, again, we have the orange represents AIM rates um, versus non-Hispanic white in the blue bars. And this is for males. Again, for the time period 2012 to 2016, you see a higher rate, significantly higher rate for AIM males in every age group except for 85 plus. Um, so I think we see the same, if we look at females, you see the same um, the same picture, basically. You have higher rates for uh, AIN females in every age category, except for 85 plus. There's not a significant difference in the rates in that age group. We'll talk more a little bit about uh, 
under 50 um, age group since that's been an area of concern lately. We've been seeing rates increase among people that are under 50 years old, whereas the trend seems to be decreasing rates for uh, people 50 years and older overall. <clears throat> and specifically, if we look at the people who are under 50, this slide shows the total percent. This is percentage of cases for AIN in this column, non-Hispanic white in the right column. So if you look at the percentage of cases, uh, under 50, you actually have almost 16% of all the cases among AIN are in this age group, um, compared to about 9% for non-Hispanic white. Um, and I don't, I think we've done some more trend uh, analysis by age group too, which I don't have with me today, but we've actually seen increase increase in the um, rates for persons under 50 among AIN and non-Hispanic white. So in this age group, we're seeing increasing rates. Um, what I wanted to point out here is that actually a higher percentage of the cases overall are in this age group, you know, American Indian Alaska Native populations. In fact, if you look at 50 to 64 years old and under 50, that's over half of their cases are in younger, relatively younger age groups, um, which leads us to really want to focus on screening as a way to um, prevent some of these cases. Uh, one more way that we look at data is by doing regional analyses. Um, and this is, this shows you a breakdown of the regions that we have come up with. There are six regions in the country and we look at rates uh, for each region. Um, and in particular, we look at, within each region, we look at uh, purchased and referred care delivery areas, which uh, used to be called CHISDA, uh, now they're called PERCTA counties. Um, so our analysis is looking at, in particular, those, those uh, counties within each of the regions. Uh, we see a lot, of, a lot less racial misclassification uh, people within those counties. And um, <clears throat> so that's how we calculate our rates based on these areas. So if, we're, if we have those areas in mind, those regions in mind, we can look at our incidence by region. And again, we see what's interesting to see here is that in these slides, we have, I guess, like a greenish bar for American and Alaska Native and a uh, gold or yellow color bar for comparison non-Hispanic white uh, group. This is males. And so if you look on the right column, you see the overall, everyone combined, you see the rate for American Indian Alaska Native males is uh, significantly higher than that of the non-Hispanic white, which we mentioned earlier on. Um, but what's interesting is if you look at this dotted line, that's showing the rate for um, the overall rate in the U.S. for non-Hispanic white males, for example. And as you look across at the regions, you can see that the rates don't vary that much depending on the region around the country for non-Hispanic white males. Whereas if you look at the rate for um, AIN overall, and you look across at each of the regions, you see a lot of regional variation in the rates. Um, you see the lowest rate in the east, and you see almost a, a 
three times that rate in Alaska. So there's a lot of geographical variation in the rates. Um, and we could probably do a whole you know, hour presentation on maybe why that is. Um, there are a lot of different risk factors involved in um, colorectal cancer. But for our purposes here, it's just interesting to note that there is a lot of geographical variation in the rates, with our highest rate by far being in Alaska among males. And then in the plains regions, northern and southern plains, we have very high rates as well. Whereas in the southwest and consider the east, uh, for example, Pacific Coast, the rates are are less. And next we'll look at females to see pretty much the same pattern um, with the extremely high rate in uh, Alaska, AIN women in Alaska, and the lower rates being in the lowest rate in the southwest and east. But again, you see almost a triple tripling of the, the rate between the lowest and the highest rates here. Um, one thing I wanted to point out, looking at these geographical differences, we now have a site at, uh, at CDC under the USCS, United States Cancer Statistics, uh, has a data visualization tool that's available. Um, and last year, they actually added a whole section for AIM data. So you can actually go to this website, there's a, put a link here, I'm sure these slides will be made available to you after the presentation. But um, the link is highlighted here. You can go to this website and click on the more topics area. And there's a section here for looking at American Indian Alaska Native database. And you can go in and look at all different types of cancer. And uh, they've actually updated it this year. So you can see, again, the five-year incremental data 2013 to 2017 data will pop up just kind of like the slides I was showing you for the regional rates. And then you can also look at the top cancers. Um, I think they have a ranking of cancer incidents um, as well. And again, this site updates the, the data every year. So next year you'll see you know, 2014 to 2018 data, for example. So that's a good resource if you want to go in and check out not only colorectal cancer, but any other type of cancer and see what the rates are regionally in your region. And then one last slide uh, as an epidemiologist and maybe too into the, the data part here, but um, I hope it's of interest to you. But this is just showing that the trends, this is male and female combined. So all American Indian Alaska Native males and females compared with uh, non-Hispanic white males and females. Um, and just looking at the, the trend overall from, you know, for the past couple decades almost, you can see uh, there's a box that describes the annual percent change. But if you just visually look at the lines showing the, the trend and the yearly rates, you can see the um, the top line you have American Indian Alaska Native males, the blue line. Um, there's been a less than 1% uh, per year decrease in the rate overall compared to the, the orange line, which is non Hispanic, I'm sorry, 
uh, yeah, non-Hispanic white males, uh, you can see a dramatic, pretty dramatic decrease in rates, especially during 2002 to 2011 period, almost 4% per year decline in rates. Um, so we're not nearly seeing the same type of decrease in rates in American and the Alaska Native males. Same with females, you have um, the green line is uh, female American and Alaska Natives, and you actually don't see a decrease at all from 1999 to 2016, um, which is pretty shocking. There hasn't been a decrease in the rates overall at all. So compared to non-Hispanic white females, where you've seen, again, a pretty dramatic decrease, uh, especially um, in the past decade or so, 2002 to 2013, there's almost 3% decrease per year in the rate. So we're not seeing this, the same um, decreases in rates, incidence rates at all. Uh, and that's something we need to address. So one way to address that issue is, is by um, screening for colorectal cancer. Um, and we will take a quick look at the um, screening prevalence among AI, AI populations. And for um, the uh, Government Performance and Results Act, GIPRA, colorectal cancer measure actually began, I think, in 2006. Um, and we've seen pretty steady increases in the screening rate since then. Um, the, however, in the past couple of years, that's kind of leveled off and we haven't been seeing an increase in the screening rate. We'll talk a little bit about those numbers, but just looking at our performance measure, the denominator currently looks at patients 50 to 75 years of age. Um, and then our numerator is looking at patients who have had colorectal cancer screening, um, which could be uh, FOBT or FIT testing during the past year or uh, the most current year, flexible sigmoidoscopy or CT colonography virtual colonoscopy in the past five years, uh, colonoscopy in the ten, past 10 years, or the newer uh, DNA fit combination tests within the past three years. So that's what our GIPRA measure is currently looking for and recording. Um, one, uh, one note, uh, the United States Preventive Services Task Force has released a draft recommendation for their screening colorectal cancer screening recommendations that would, um, when or if it's finalized, will actually uh, recommend screening to begin at age 45 for average risk individuals. So that, again, that hasn't been finalized, but the draft is out that they, it looks like they're going to be changing their recommendation to uh, 45 years of age to start screening instead of 50, which, uh, which may be good in, in the fact that we're seeing um, a lot of cases and increases in cases in people under 50 years of age. Um, just looking quickly at the colorectal cancer screening rate or prevalence among IHS facilities and reporting tribes. Um, in 2018, I'm sorry, let's see, the, the GIPRA target in 2018 was 32.6%, hoping to get that many people up to date with screening. Um, 
2018, they just missed that mark uh, by, by 31.5% screened or 31.9. I think it actually decreased slightly to 31.5% in 2019. So they're overall, they're not reaching the target um, the screening target for GIFRA. Um, and with the pandemic this year, I, I suspect they probably won't be meeting that uh, target for uh, screening in 2020 as well. Where screening has dropped off considerably once the pandemic started. But that is their target uh, to currently try to reach. It's well below the healthy people target. Well, 2020 target was 70, I think 71%. The healthy people 2030 target that has just come out is actually 74.7%, as you can see here. So there's a long way to go to, to meet um, these screening targets. And um, I'll show you, the next slide shows uh, a little better breakdown just by IHS administrative area. IHS area wide, you see again, the, the GIFRA target of 32.6%. And we see that uh, looks like Nashville area Navajo and Oklahoma actually were the only three that areas that surpassed that goal in the 2019 result. Um, so there's a wide range of uh, screening prevalence among the, the IHS areas. So there's a lot of work to be done, and but there are ways to to increase screening. And just to take a quick look at um, things that have shown uh, to be evidence-based that are done to improve screening, colorectal cancer screening in particular, come from the Community Preventive Services Task Force and their Guide to Community Preventive Services. Um, just to give a quick overview, they recommend actually combining a, a, a lot of different interventions um, to increase colorectal cancer screening, kind of choosing from these different strategies, increasing community demand, increasing community access, and increasing provider delivery. And all of these event, uh, interventions are effective in increasing screening with either colonoscopy or uh, stool testing. So I'll just kind of highlight each one of those areas and show you what that what they're exactly talking about and what is shown to be evidence-based. Um, under the increased community demand, the following things have been shown to be effective in increasing screening uh, for, for patients. Group education, one-on-one -on -one education, client reminders, um, whatever type of reminders you guys happen to use, they're effective. Um, client incentives, if that's a possibility in your clinics as well, just to use monetary incentives or other types of incentives that has been shown to get people to be screened. Use of mass media, advertising or billboards, TV, PSAs, whatever, and small media within the clinics, paper handing out flyers or whatever, those, those have been shown to be effective as well. So these are all used to increase the demand for screening. Um, ways to increase community access to screening, which is important. Um, we're looking at interventions that reduce the client out-of-pocket costs. You know, Kevin will talk about 
projects that he's been involved with where you're actually mailing um, screening kits to people and it's not costing them money. Uh, other interventions can reduce structural barriers such as um, all the things listed here. I won't go through every every one of these, but uh, these just ways to reduce any type of barriers for people to get screened. Um, are, these are these are the ones that have been shown to be effective. Um, let's see. Um, and finally, just increasing provider delivery. Uh, these are also effective ways to increase screening, um, giving providers reminders, giving them in incentives, and then providing them feedback um, as far as you know, if they have a cohort of patients that they need to get screened, just providing them feedback on you know what how they're doing or how they're doing compared to other providers in their clinic or that, those sort of things tend to be effective as well. And so I'll just touch on a couple of uh, projects that our Division of Cancer Prevention and uh, Control has been uh, involved with over the past few years with Kevin and others. Um, we've worked extensively with the Alaska Native Tribal Health Consortium. Uh, one past example that's been very effective for increasing screening was um, uh, called the Colorectal Family History Outreach Project, where they actually, when they had a, a colorectal case diagnosed, they would interview that person for their uh, their family contacts and um, people who tended to be at higher risk because they were family members of someone who had a, had a case of colorectal cancer. And then following up with those people to get them screened, in particular, focusing on that group instead of just everyone that needed to be screened that was average risk. And they they hired, I'll show you in the next slide, they actually hired uh, patient navigators to help boost the effectiveness of that project. One of their current projects they're uh, working on now is looking at um, promoting colorectal cancer screening and the use of fecal immunochemical tests among AI and people with uh, and focusing on diabetes and people with pre-diabetes because uh, having diabetes predisposes people to to developing colorectal cancer and some other cancers as well. Um, so they're focusing on on uh, on those lists of people and trying to notify them that they should be screened. And, um, they'll be working in hopefully a couple of different regional tribal health organizations. Um, they've had some delays too, with, as everyone has with the pandemic, and but that's just the way it is right now. Um, as I said, they they were successful by uh, with their family history project by looking at by hiring patient navigators um, who were basically hired just to do the follow up for, for screening and get people in for screening. And this was shown to be very effective. You can see just uh, from this visual on the left, you see the number of first degree relatives that were screened and then the years below um, and how low that was at the start of their projects. Um, and you can see the boost that came just after hiring their first uh, screening navigator uh, in 2000, 
six or seven, uh, you could see a significant boost in the number of people screened. And then they actually hired, got funding to hire a second navigator in 2011 and things really took off. So that is a, an effective way to, to get people screened is to have someone dedicated typically that's a community health worker or someone who can focus entirely on people who need to be screened and getting them in and navigating them to screening, that's been shown to be very important. Um, another group we worked with is the uh, American Indian C Cancer Foundation in uh, Minnesota. And we helped uh, fund them to produce a uh, colorectal cancer toolkit that's designed for providers and clinics. And it, it just kind of is a guide to help um, clinics who are, are interested in learning how they can increase screening at their site and how to engage your leadership and set up core teams and, and what kind of interventions were successful in those clinics up in, the, in the Northern Plains. And again, there's a link to, to that resource here on the slide. Um, and then uh, finally, uh, just to mention um, the Southwest Tribal Epidemiology Center in the Albuquerque Area Indian Health Board. They've worked with us for several years and, and we've helped, helped uh, fund many of their projects focusing on colorectal cancer screening and util utilization of community health workers um, to be involved in patient navigation. <coughs> and there's a website here that shows all the uh, all the resources that they have as well to offer. And then um, their current project, uh, I'll basically let Kevin, um, that'll be a segue into Kevin's talk because <laughs> I mentioned that here, but I'll let him discuss what they're doing um, currently. So those are the slides I'll have and I'll let Kevin um, uh, expand more on the project, projects they're doing in the Southwest. I'll stop there. Hi, thanks so much, Don. Uh, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, my name is Kevin English, and I'm the director of what we call Aztec, uh, the Albuquerque Area Southwest Tribal Epidemiology Center. Uh, we're one of 12 tribal epicenters across the country, and we're set up to serve the 27 tribal communities um, in the Indian Health Service Administrative Area, um, which I'm sure many of you know is uh, most of New Mexico. Um, Southwest Colorado and West Texas. And so what I wanted to do was go a little more in depth on one of the projects that Don just mentioned, um, which we believe would be an excellent strategy for you to consider um, to enhance colorectal cancer screening in the midst of COVID-19. Um, so with that, only one data slide for me, I promise. Um, Don had several um, and I think he covered it pretty much in full. This one though is alarming. And so this is United States screening rates. And what is not surprising, um, let me try and briefly explain what you're looking at here. Um, each line represents uh, screening across a year. And so you can see we have the 2017, 2018, 2019, and the early 2020 mean weekly screening rates on display here for breast cancer screening, colon cancer screening, and cervical cancer screening. And what you can see with all three types of cancer screening, what occurs around week 10 in 2020, which is around the time COVID was first um, 
becoming part of our vocabulary, um, you can see the precipitates drop in uh, cancer screening. And this has endured um, throughout this year. It has recovered some, but as I'm sure everybody on this call knows, routine primary care, preventive um, screenings, immunizations, um, these really important health um, protective measures have declined tremendously um, in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic. And therefore, we probably need to be thinking more creatively and innovatively as to how we can um, resurrect uh, these important exams so that we don't create new crises um, of health status um, as a result of COVID-19. And so when we're looking at um, colorectal cancer screening in particular, um, one area that we've at least thought about, and we thought about well before COVID, but now we realize that it actually works quite well in the midst of the pandemic, is all of these um, mailboxes that all of us see when we're driving out um, within the communities um, throughout our region. And for um, the majority of the screening eligible population, which Don has already mentioned, um, those who are average risk, they are eligible to participate in FIT testing as um, a recommended colorectal cancer screening test. And the FIT kits were never designed to be performed inside of a health clinic. They were always um, intended to be a take-home test, a test that you complete in the privacy of your home, and then you return to the clinic. So this is not unusual that um, we would be thinking about FIT right now when clinics are closed um, to non-emergent care or when clinic staff are overwhelmed with COVID-related responsibilities. Um, so an option is instead of waiting for tribal members or patients to come into your health facility um, to then receive a recommendation for screening, have somebody review their file, make sure that they're due for screening, then have that um, healthcare provider make the recommendation, provide the person with a kit and instructions on how to complete them, have the individual go home, complete the kit and bring it back as was usual care. The thinking was that there is the potential to skip some of those steps and instead just get the kits directly to those who need them. So that way we don't potentially miss folks when they come into a health facility for any other reason. Um, and we also take out the extra step of having people have to come to the clinic twice. So what we did a few years back was we worked with in partnership with three of the tribes in our area to test a unique intervention to see if mailing the kits um, directly to patients would work. What we were seeing in the literature was some emerging data that showed within the Kaiser um, Permanente um, Health uh, Care Network, as well as the VA system, mailed fit was working. But what we didn't know was would it work in rural American Indian communities. And so this next slide shows you the design of our intervention. So again, working with three communities, we randomized participants who were of screening eligible age into one of these three groups. Um, so either usual care, which was the care I just described, where the um, patient would have to come into the facility, uh, provider would have to recommend the screening, the patient would have to receive the kit and instructions, take it home, complete it, and bring it back. Group two was where we mailed the kit, and I'll show you in a minute what we included in the mailing. And in group three, we mailed the kit and we also had um, existing CHRs provide uh, telephone calls and or home visits to 
individuals to remind them to return the kit and to answer any questions that they might have. So that's just a visual representation of the three different groups. In addition to those groups, um, to those core interventions, we also included reminders. So we did do some mailed reminders to the male um, recipients of the kit, as well as the phone calls and home visits and the mailed reminder. So pretty much live outreach to those in group three. So it was very important to us to um, you know, look to see if we could see any differences, not only between mailing the kits and usual care, but also between mailing the kits and adding this additional outreach on top of it. Here are the materials that went into the mailed kit. So we didn't just put the tube into the kit. Um, first of all, we didn't think anyone would really um, like that, <laughs> but we also thought, you know, in order to also, you know, provide the motivation to actually complete it, um, in addition to the kit, we included a cover letter that was signed by the clinic director or a medical provider um, reminding the person that they're due for this screening or overdue for the screening and how important it is. And they also had this separate instruction sheet. So we saw that the manufacturer did include instructions, but we felt that there needed to be more visual um, instructions for how to complete the kit. So these all went in all of the mailed kits for group two and group three. And so just to give you a sense of some of the results of this um, you know, initial study. So in the usual care group, we got about 6% back of the fit kits. And you can see we saw a two and a half fold increase um, between the usual care group and the male group. Um, and then the male group plus the outreach was about a three fold increase from usual care. Um, so this was encouraging, right? It shows that you can do mailed fit and that you can um, see an increase in screening. Um, what we also wanted to do was see were there any differences within the groups. So across all three tribes, the same results held. Um, so that was also um, a good finding to have, to know that the same results were seen in all three communities. Um, but then we also wanted to see, did males and females respond the same way to the different interventions? And you can see here, there actually is a, a little bit of a difference. It, in this case, it looks like, um, you know, females by and large preferred the mailing plus the outreach. The males really were doing just as well with the mailings as they were with the mailing plus the outreach. Um, so that also gives you an indication that there may be some um, gender differences or sex differences um, within your individual communities, which is important. Because if you look closely at the data, even though colorectal cancer should impact men and women the same, we all have a colon and rectum, what we know is that males unfortunately are disproportionately diagnosed at late stages and therefore are driving more incidents so we haven't you know had routine screening where we can catch the polyp and remove it before it ever becomes cancer and in most cases um, we're also seeing more advanced stage of disease upon diagnosis which makes it harder to treat and survive So that being said, you'd probably note that those rates were still pretty low, as did we. Um, so we're still in the process of obtaining approvals to launch a new, much more expanded and larger trial. Um, what the, the characteristics of this new trial that will have tremendous advantages over what we did in the past and really build on our knowledge in this area, well, first of all, we're gonna have a larger sample size. So we'll increase the number of communities to see if these results hold. Um, in additional tribal communities and also increasing the number of participants. That'll also help us look more at those within group differences to see 
um, differences by age, again, looking at the differences by sex, any other characteristics that might be predictive of screening that we weren't able to do because we didn't have enough statistical power in our first study. We also know that the CHRs that we were working with in the three communities have a tremendous amount on their plate, and that was no different during our study trial. So in many instances, they weren't able to give it as much attention and to adhere to the protocol as much as they would have liked due to competing responsibilities. So in our new trial, we will actually fund and support dedicated navigators to really make sure that we see the true difference that could occur if you have people routinely making those phone calls or in this case, also potentially doing home visits. We also still don't know much about who's not returning the kits um, through this type of study. So what we'll also have is a pre and post test survey and some post tests or you know, post intervention focus groups where hopefully people, whether they complete the kits or not, will participate so we can learn a little bit more about what might be holding people back. What are those constraining influences you know, at the individual level, at the community level, at the system level that may be holding people back from getting screened in general? Because only then will we really know how to intervene with those individuals who aren't returning kits. We're also gonna have the ability to compare a community-drawn sample to a clinic-drawn sample meaning that not only those members of a tribal community who are active users of the ITU facility in their community will be um, eligible to participate, rather in some communities will be able to pull um, the, the sample directly from tribal enrollment. So anyone from the tribal community living in the community, regardless of who they choose for their healthcare provider, will be able to participate. And we'll also add a cost effectiveness analysis to better understand the costs of this type of intervention and hopefully the cost benefits. This is my second to last slide here. Um, so we think mailed fit is a good option during COVID. Um, it makes sense, it's very low risk. Um, it's something that would be quite easy to um, do in any community. It's really just a matter of running your system to determine who's due for screening, making sure you have those addresses, and then putting together the packets and mailing the kits out. But these are some really important considerations to think about um, if you are gonna do mailed fit. Um, so what I just described is the essence of the intervention, but there are other things to really think about. So first of all, whenever possible, you'd like to only include those average risk patients. As Don mentioned, colonoscopy is preferred for those individuals with a personal or a um, family history of colorectal cancer um, and some other conditions, um, some hereditary conditions like Lynch syndrome or um, you know, chronic inflammatory bowel disease, we'd wanna exclude those individuals from FIT because they should always just be getting colonoscopy. So if you can do that, that's the ideal. You also really need to make sure you have an established tracking system um, because we really do need to keep track of which kits are coming back. Um, you wanna make sure that you have a reminder system in place as well, and these two things should be working together. So as you are getting kits back, those individuals are being removed from your tracking system or being designated as complete so that those who are making the reminders aren't wasting their time making reminders to people who have already returned the kits. You also wanna make sure everybody's included in your tracking system because you don't want anyone to fall through the cracks. So really important to have these two systems in place and really should have some dedicated staff that can provide reminders. They don't need to have a, you know, a full FTE to do this, um, but really to make sure that they know it's gonna be part of their job and that there will be several um, days where they may have to dedicate specific time to making these reminders. Also, if your community is under screened, 
you may want to be prepared for a higher percent of positive fit tests coming back. Usually in a general population, we'd see around five to 7% of these tests are positive. And the recommendation is for those individuals to immediately go for a diagnostic colonoscopy. In an underscreened population, that number, that percentage could be higher. It's a good thing though. The goal right now is to find those individuals now, even though they've been underscreened or out of compliance with the recommended screening guidelines. You also wanna make sure, especially during COVID, that you have systems in place for diagnostic follow-up, um, which is colonoscopy. So again, you wouldn't wanna do a lot of FIT testing if you knew that people couldn't get a colonoscopy because FIT is only gonna tell you that there's blood detected and it's coming from the colon or the rectum. What you next need would be the diagnostic follow-up. Screening's really not complete until you've gotten all the way through that colonoscopy. Um, so if that's not available to you or at a certain volume, you may want to consider staggering, maybe mailing the kits out in monthly phases according to people's birthday, which I'm sure they would love, um, you know, or some other type of tiered system for mailing out. You have a 12-month period because fit needs to take place once a year. So if you're concerned that you're going to have a large number of positive fits or if you just have a really big population, you know, stagger the mailings so that way you're not overwhelming your diagnostic facilities, especially during COVID. And then finally, keep in mind, fit testing is annual. So even though there's a lot to celebrate, we wanna celebrate the milestones as we go, remember that this all needs to restart again after 12 months. The only way that fit is equivalent to colonoscopy in its benefit is if it's implemented every single year. And so I, before I mention my, um, or before I um, turn it back over for questions and answers, I did wanna say one other intervention that I did not discuss only because of timing is um, flu fit. So another appropriate COVID safe um, intervention for promoting colorectal cancer screening would be to combine the fit testing with your flu shot clinics, or even just whenever you're providing flu shots. This year was very different in that many communities didn't hold the same types of fit or flu tests or flu shot clinics that they have in the past where they have a large gathering of people, you know, that are all lined up and just coming in one after another after another. And then you can have a table sitting alongside of that, providing the fit kits with education. That didn't happen as much as it has in years past. Instead, there was a lot of drive-through flu shots or um, single individual visit flu shots. It doesn't mean though that we can't try and what we call double the dose of prevention in that moment. So flu fit is an opportunity. You already have your target population coming in. The goal would be to have a list for the person who's giving the flu shots, have a list of those who are also due for fit testing, and then they provide that fit kit at that same time, document that they've given it out, and then that triggers some type of reminder system. I realize the bulk of flu shots have already taken place, so I didn't go into too much depth on that, uh, but Don did share a website um, that we created, tribalcolorectalhealth.org, and if you go there, you can see a few um, flu fit communications materials which you can either consider use, using now if you're still doing a lot of flu testing or flu shots, or you can consider um, using that next fall. Um, so with that, my contact information is here and happy to answer any questions that you all might have. Alrighty, thank you very much, uh, Don and Kevin. Uh, thank you for presenting today. Um, if anybody has any questions, um, please feel free to type them into the question box in the lower right-hand corner of the screen, and then I'll go ahead and uh, 
read them aloud for um, Don and Kevin to answer. Uh, real quick before we get to that, we do want to give a quick plug for our next webinar that is coming up next week. We're going to take what we learned uh, today and try to apply it um, for uh, um, colorectal cancer screening awareness month. Um, they'll be presented by Melissa Buffalo at American Indian Cancer Foundation and Beth Seeloff with the Intertribal Council of Michigan. Uh, you can uh, register for the webinar by going to keepitsacred.org. That's keepitsacred.org. And then click on the events tab, and it should be right there on January 28th. There's a registration link right there. So visit keepitsacred.org to register for next week's webinar on Thursday. <clears throat> and I'm going to pull up the question box here. Uh, doesn't look like we have any questions in the question box at the moment. Uh, looks like it's populating now. Um, this person asks, uh, has it been recorded or available for future use? Uh, the webinar will be recorded, and the webinar will be available at keepitsacred.org within the next 24 hours. And that's where we can also access the recording and the slides. Um, this person says... Uh, Follow-up colonoscopy screening can take several weeks to months for rural American Indian Alaska Native residents. This person asks, how do you keep the momentum going for those with a positive test? So there's some feedback. Okay, there it goes. Um, you know, I think that Don's mention of the navigators and the data that he showed from Alaska really shows how pairing one of those navigators with a person who tests positive, fit positive, is a really great strategy to try and ensure and encourage that individual to follow through. Um, to me, that's been probably the best approach that I've seen, um, but I don't know if Don's seen other examples of how to really keep that momentum going from positive fit through colonoscopy. Okay, um, this next person says, uh, were there any language barriers? So oh, this is Don. Oh, go ahead. I, sorry, I, I was muted. I muted myself. <laughs> I was trying to answer that last question, but, um, but Kevin was right about having, uh, dedicated navigators or, or CHRs um, who can work to get people in for screening and help them navigate the system. But as far as colonoscopies, um, the only other thing I've heard that's been effective is just uh, for, for sites to find people who will actually maybe donate um, their services at times if necessary. Uh, I've heard of um, gastroenterologists who would actually dedicate their time to do some free colonoscopies or, or do them in off hours or whatever that uh, that may not be the situation where you live but it's worth um, checking into go ahead kevin you had a response yeah i guess for the for the language question 
Um, one of the recommendations uh, right away was to come up with that instruction sheet that was really driven by photos instead of just text. Um, and so that was one of the reasons for developing a separate instruction sheet that was heavy on imagery instead of just text. Um, so that was one approach. Obviously, the folks who were in the group um, with the CHR benefited from having um, outreach performed by an individual who is a CHR, who at least of those that worked with us in the three tribal communities, all were um, bilingual and able to um, speak the native language within the community. Um, and then the letter also included a contact person and a name that somebody could call. So rather than, um, so those in the mailed, the group that received the mailed kits, um, rather than um, get the, you know, proactive outreach from the CHRs, they still had the name and number of an individual they could contact should they have questions. So those are the best ways that we were able to navigate language in the intervention. This person here asks, uh, what may be the contributing factor to the higher rate of colorectal cancer among uh, uh, Alaska Native females? Um, this is Don. I, I think, as I mentioned before, there's so many, there are plenty of factors related to colorectal cancer screening, uh, such as smoking, um, uh, diet, where if low fiber diet has been uh, shown to increase your risk for colon cancer, um, high, high intake of processed meat, uh, red meat, for example, increases risk. Um, why there would be a, a higher rate for women versus men, um, probably a combination of all those factors. Um, I think women tend to be more likely to get screened, so I'm not sure more likely than men to get screened in general, but um, so I don't think it would be that reason. Um, uh, Kevin, do you have any response to that one? You know, I really don't have anything else to add, Don, but it's a good question and definitely one that I, I think that we would need to look into more. <clears throat> uh, Mike, I also thought of a, another I wanted to add to that other response about uh, access to colonoscopy. I know um, one thing that was tried in Alaska, I don't know if anybody's on the call from ANTHC, but um, Alaska years ago, they actually tried the, the approach of bringing um, gastroenterologists or other people who could do colonoscopies out to a regional hub and uh, spend a couple of days doing nothing but colonoscopies. And that was actually a pretty pretty successful approach. But again, people were donating their time. You know, a lot of the providers were donating time to go out there and do that. Um, but they would schedule a bunch of people in rural communities to come into a, a regional hub uh, on those days and have just nothing but colonoscopies being done for two or three days straight. Um, that may be something that could be done uh, depending on where you're at to give that a try. Uh, this person here asks, uh, do you have a recommendation for use of the Cologuard test? Well, I, um, this is Don. I, uh, it is an approved um, test, 
that could be that should be reimbursed for screening. Um, I think it's still, as far as I know, it's still a rather uh, expensive, costly test. So if if your if your insurance isn't covering it, may not be the best option. I think last time I uh, looked, it was five or six hundred dollar uh, test to do that. Um, so want to make sure that the that the the person's insurance is able to cover that. Um, but it is an effective test. I think it's probably 92% effective in detecting colon cancer, uh, the DNA part of the test. Um, I think maybe the, the downside or is that it, I, I think it's still combined with doing the FIT test. So you're not only doing the, the DNA stool sample, but you're also doing a, a FIT um, on the on the alternative years or something like that. So you're, you're in a way you're combining two different tests. Um, this person here says, uh, what is the average cost to hire a navigator? Hmm. Well, so that's a great question. So as I mentioned in our um, first study, we really focused on trying to work with the existing you know, workforce and CHRs in particular, and realize that this really is more involved than just asking somebody to pick it up, especially if somebody's already operating on a full scope of work. Um, so I do think that what you wanna think about is you know, who are the right people to serve as navigators, and that's gonna determine your price as well, because you're looking at you know, probably a part-time position, um, but you know you could have a nurse provide um, navigation, um, which I've seen in some um, settings, and it does seem to work well if you have a nurse in that role, especially if the test comes back positive and then there's a need to um, coordinate with a referral network to set up a colonoscopy and to um, counsel the individual on bowel prep and get the prescriptions ordered, etc. Um, however, we've also found that um, for more social and tangible support, um, a community health worker um, is a good fit, no pun intended, um, for the navigator role. And so obviously there's going to be a difference in the you know, hourly wage of those two positions. And so it really depends on, I think, what the needs are. I think it's nice if you do have community health workers, that there's also a public health nurse or somebody on site that can also provide additional support to those individuals so they're not operation operating in isolation of the overall healthcare system. Um, so th there are some important considerations. Um, I would suggest that in a, you know, depending on the size of the population, in general, you know, it, you know, you want to look at your size of population 50 to 75, look at your screening rate, and that'll help determine how many hours you're probably going to need of this individual. Um, and in my opinion, probably around 10 hours per week could be sufficient for colorectal cancer screening in an average size um, community. But of course, there is no such thing as an average size community. Uh, so a lot of variables to consider, but I'm sure when we do our cost analysis in this next study, we'll have more information, more concrete data to give you. And I have a strong feeling it will be cost beneficial. Well, thank you very much, Kevin and Don. Um, we are getting to the top of the hour, so we do want to make sure to respect everybody's time and um, go ahead and start wrapping it up now. We do want to remind everybody that we do have a webinar coming up on January 28th 
um, taking what we learned today and applying it towards um, colorectal cancer screening month with implementation strategies at the grassroots level. Again, Melissa Buffalo from American Indian Cancer Foundation and Beth Seeloff from the Intertribal Council of Michigan will be presenting on that presentation. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wrap it up. And for anybody that's looking for an archive of today's presentation, uh, it will be available at keepitsacred.org within the next 24 hours. Thank you very much and have yourself a great day. To view the full webinar video and additional resources, please visit our website, keepitsacred.org, and click the Resources tab and the Webinar Archive tab. Thank you for listening to this Webinar Archive presentation from the National Native Network.